You are listening to Double Espresso with D, with me, D Sterling. I love a great story. And in season two, Meet the Environmentalists, I will be having coffee with pioneers, game changers, leaders, and entrepreneurs who are truly making a difference in our world. I hope you can join us each week to hear about their fascinating and inspiring journeys. Welcome everyone to Double Espresso with D, with me, D Sterling. This series is The Environmentalist. I am super excited to welcome a first for Double Espresso with D, a scientist and marine conservation specialist, Dr. Tessa Hemson. Tessa is an ecologist, a coral reef specialist, a writer. She's worked extensively across Africa. She's appeared in documentaries. Today, Tessa is the Principal Scientist and Program Manager of Oceans Without Borders. This is a project partnership between And Beyond, which is a notable conservation-focused travel company, and Africa Foundation, which is a community development organization. So it's effectively intersectorial partnerships working together to focus on marine conservation and community development, notably in East Africa. Tessa is also an adjunct researcher at the ARC Centre of Excellence for Coral Reef Studies at St. James Cook University in Australia and continues to work with many of the leading marine scientists in the world on the most pressing issues facing our oceans and their communities. Lastly, before we jump right in, Tessa studied botany and zoology, conservation biology And during her PhD studies in coral ecology, supplemented her income by working as a helicopter underwater evacuation instructor, no less, training soldiers and pilots for the Australian Defence Force. Welcome, Dr. Tessa Hampson. (laughs) Thank you so much for that introduction, Dee. It's so lovely to be with you today. Well, I mean, even thinking about what you were doing to supplement your income during your studies, (laughs) makes me feel nervous I mean how was that it wasn't it wasn't like you know working in the local restaurant well that's also very stressful actually but (laughs) how was that experience it was fantastic it was probably one of the my favorite jobs in my career actually I shouldn't say that but um it was it was just so fantastically different and it it um it used all of my skills and passion for for underwater work um in a way that was just totally different and it was you know, a lot of what you do in science and conservation is, is quite long term. You know, it takes a long time yeah. to see the impacts of your work. And that was so hard hitting and immediate that it was, you know, you crash the simulator into the into the swimming pool and they simulate a helicopter crash and everyone has to get out alive and it's a matter of seconds. And the guys, it's all military style training. So it's it's totally right. different to the kind of soft paddy, you know, ease into it style so it was it was really fun really challenging um taught me a lot about um human psychology because you need to kind of get it right quickly because guys have been shoved underwater in a metal machine with no air source so you've got to teach them well so it was good I really loved it actually yeah what did you learn about yourself through that experience and those range of experiences, I guess, because not everybody can cope in these situations. Obviously, we talk about, you know, fight and flight or adrenaline rush. But what did you learn about you at that point in your life? Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think there have been a couple of points in my life where I think I've realized that um, I do go quiet under pressure when you need when you need a you need to respond. And it's that fight or flight. 
and um, you need to just go quiet and, and figure it out very quickly, <laughs> but sort it out. And I actually really enjoy being in that space. I think that's why I enjoy, you know, underwater work and things like climbing and, um, you know, putting yourself in spaces where you need to make quick decisions. And I think on the ocean, that's really important. You know, I have a, a rule of thumb that I try to always follow. I don't always get it right. And I'm always reminded why, but the rule of thumb is that, you know, if you think it, do it. You know, if you've got that instinct of like, I love that just actually tie that on or, you know, strap that on or make sure you check that, just do it, follow it. Otherwise uh, you generally regret it later. And I think totally. it's a Well, Tessa, obviously a lot of your work is really working in communities, working on land and in water, in remote places, and it involves a huge amount of travel. And clearly this past year, travel has been incredibly difficult and, and probably even more so to the sort of places you tend to go. Who over this past year, when you haven't been able to travel so much, would you have loved to have had coffee with and why? Ooh, there's a couple of people. So I don't know. When you phrase it like that, it's different. So at a on a career, can I can I give a couple of answers? Of course. So one of the women that in thinking about, you know, who would it be? The one woman that I really think would be an amazing person to to spend time with and have the opportunity to have coffee with is a woman called Wangari Matai, who was right. um, born in in Kenya and just you know starting at a really grassroots level had a really profound impacts on conservation sustainability, um, particularly in East Africa and particularly for women. And I think what I really admire about her work is that, well, one, you know, she was a real kind of um, leader in that space, first woman in Kenya to get a PhD, first woman in Africa to be recognized with the Nobel Peace Prize. So a real, Incredible. you know, leading the charge. But what is amazing is that she's just, she functioned at so many levels in such a honest and genuine way um, you know she at working from the very basics of working with school children all the way up to being engaged in um, high level politics you know UN policy development so she managed to really have impact at so many levels and I think that's a really really important part of what needs to happen globally but particularly in Africa um, to drive the change we need to see so at a professional level I think she's probably someone that I would love to engage with over the past year, there have been times when I would have just killed for coffee with my best friend. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. Just the human connection, right? Which yeah. became so yeah. precious. And how has this year been? I know we touched on it briefly some while ago um, when we last spoke, but how have you been able to work with a efficiency and efficacy and move forward, particularly given the work you do with these local communities when, you know, I mean, Zoom doesn't always cut it, as we know. I mean, if, if you're lucky enough to get an internet connection with half the globe on Zoom, how's that experience been for you this year and how, you, how have you managed? No, so I mean, extremely challenging, Dee. So I mean, as, as you and I discovered last week, you know, <laughs> internet comms on, an, on our island destinations are not e always easy. So um, you know, one is just that, you know, the connectivity is not always there in these remote places. Um, mm. But beyond that as well, I mean, we work with uh, lots of community members in, in our various locations who don't necessarily have laptops or necessarily have literacy, you know, basic literacy. So despite, you know, being phenomenal field workers and ambassadors for conservation, um, so relying on remote communication is challenging. And I think the last year has been a really interesting learning curve in that space. You know, we've always said that our priority is to build strong local capacity and to make sure that we're leaving a legacy in these countries that is, is 
embedded and local and it's not kind of flying in with a top-down um, approach. Absolutely. And I think, I think this year has really emphasized the need to build strong capacity locally. So, you know, when our core team can't necessarily get to these sites, we have all the capacity and structures and leadership in place at these different locations that is is there. It's not going to change. It's not dependent on work permits. It's not going to be depending on borders closing. It's there. It's integrated. It's part of the growth at right. these local sites. And um, interestingly, since the lockdown has eased, one of the biggest pushes of Oceans Without Borders has been building that local capacity, building our local right. team. And just the last few months of having those structures in place has just been phenomenal, seeing how much is changing. So remind me where you were laterally, where you've been based? Um, so all over the place. I'm a bit of a gypsy. Um, but the <laughs> last, so I was based on Vermezi Island, which is in the northern Karimbas archipelago of Mozambique. Right. Stunningly beautiful area has just actually recently been relaunched as our hope spot. So in Mission Earl's um, Mission Blue Alliance. Right. So wonderful. Yeah, absolutely spectacular place. Um, but unfortunately, also, um, a place where there's intense conflict at the moment, as you know, many people have seen mm. on the news probably. So it's that all kind of came to a head. <laughs> we had the insurgency ramping up in Cabo Delgado and then the lockdown um, announced within hours of each other. So we left Fumizi and the Karimbas, um, leaving our core right. local team there who have been absolutely phenomenal maintaining the conservation effort there. Lockdown, I've been in the Drakensberg Mountains in South Africa, which has been very, very far from the sea for my liking, <laughs> but a, a great blessing in terms of being able to be somewhere wild yeah. with good internet comms to be able to, to continue the work. And then our other site where we had a brief chat last week is, yes. is Nemba Island, uh, which is off the northeastern point of Zanzibar in Tanzania. Beautiful, tiny little island. So it's, it's about one square kilometer big. Um, Gosh, it's incredible. It's absolutely stunningly beautiful. And the, the blue of the water there is just something that is out of this world. It's, it's hard to capture. Um, How did it feel going back there after all this time and the kind of emotion and intensity and complexity of these, you know, this year plus? Mm. No, it's incredibly special. It's, um, you know, being welcomed, all of our East African sites um, and Southern African. I mean, there's a, a warmth in those local communities yeah. that is just, you know, it's, it's family. And I think I was telling you last week that one of the, one of the welcomes that you, you get is, um, you know, they say karibu, which means welcome. But karibu nyumbani means welcome home. And oh, beautiful. Uh, having that after lockdown and COVID is quite, it's quite emotional, yeah, for sure, as you can see. <laughs> <laughs> I bet <Sorry>. it was. <laughs> no, I feel it. I feel the emotion of that. Like, you know, the reunion, right? Finding one or, one another again, right? Like in French, yeah. like a, you know, there's, there's a reunion, which means meeting, but there's retrouvaille, yeah. which is finding one another again, right? Which is yes. what you did, which is beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. So Tessa, you grew up on a farm in the savannas and in, in the escarpment forests in, in South Africa. And I guess that environment instilled in you a love of nature. But what are your memories of that time, you know, from an environmental point of view? And how did that contribute to make you who you are today and what you do today? Um, so, I mean, I, I think I was incredibly blessed with the childhood that I had. I um, have parents who are just, you know, particularly my dad is just a, a naturalist to the bone. You know, we just from you know the time I could even remember it's um you go for walking it's just and walking in the bush and being out in the bush has always been just a huge part of life but <laughs> my mother's often she used to get very frustrated with us because 
it would take forever to get anywhere because everything had to be identified on route. So my dad is a phenomenal naturalist um, and he has this passion for list making and, and knowing the names of everything. So from a very young age, it was, you know, when you're walking in the bush, it was, you know, what tree is that? What flower is that? What bird is that? You know, everything was better than school. Oh, absolutely. Yes. I mean, and, you know, growing up in a nature reserve like that, where you just instinctively from a young age, you you have you taught to look and inquire and be curious and to see your environment. I think that shaped me hugely, um, you know, and it's it's not just in the bush that that applies. You know, I think it implies applies to the marine environment. Absolutely. But then also dealing with people and communities, you know, really being curious and um, looking for the small details that set individuals or ecosystems or species apart, you know, or relationships. Right. It's just right. having that, paying that attention to detail and being curious on how it works. I think that really has shaped my trajectory through life, definitely. And, you know, you today are spending a lot of time working in the oceans and with the communities, because obviously the two are inextricably linked and many, many communities in various parts of the world, in many parts of the world, frankly, rely on the ocean for their livelihood, for their source of protein. And I mean, you know me, I love a bit of data and you know all this, but I I just, you know, when you think about the ocean, it's a space for everyone. No one really owns it, I guess. It's the largest habitat, you know, in the world. Um, Mm -hmm. I think it's 70% of the Earth's surface and more if you consider the depth. You know, by the end of the 20th century, people kind had removed 90%, I think, of of the largest fish from the oceans. 80 million tons of fish are seafood extracted each year. And 30% of fish stocks have been, you know, it, it's been reduced to 30% of fish stocks, which is, was creating a critical issue for us in the world. Obviously, there's, you know, agriculture or, or aquaculture rather. So fish farming, which is, um, I think it's today provides about 82 million tons. And that is becoming a massive, massive issue. And of course, you know, there are other things that, that you're very involved in, such as, you know, coastal habitats like mangroves and seagrass meadows have been removed for these fish farms in many cases. Shallow water corals are suffering. It's a big issue with bleaching, you know, in a way, and, and, and you know all about this, and I'd love to hear from you. You know, coral reefs are like rainforests as well, aren't they, in terms of biodiversity? And I think a lot of people don't know that. You know, we've always got plastic invading the oceanic food chains. It all can feel a bit overwhelming, right? Um, <laughs> it's it's <laughs> a bit like so many so many issues of the environmental debate. It's it's and and you know I know there are solutions and we'll come on to that. But when did you decide to focus on oceans, and and where did you start? Um, so I think I don't know. It was it was interesting. It was a. Um, Oceans, I think they were, it was in my core from the very beginning. It's, it's sort of hard to explain, but I remember as a, as a little girl in the swimming pool at home on the farm, um, making waves in the swimming pool because I was, we hadn't gone on our beach holiday and I was like trying to simulate the sea in the swimming pool. Um, so it was, it's been a core, it's almost a, like a calling for me um, from a young age. And I was sort of exploring, you know, where did this come from? Because it's, it's a question that I get asked often and I've so sort of been thinking about it a bit more. And I think... The real magic of the ocean for me and, and why I got into it is just because of the vastness of it. You know, you're talking about how right. huge it is. And it's just so vast and it's so unknown and it's wild. And you you can't any day on the ocean, any day on the beach or just underwater, you know, any little step you take into that watery world, you're surprised. 
There will yeah. be something you have never seen before in your life. You will learn something. You'll be challenged. You might be dumped by a wave with your face in the sand and put back in your place. Um, but there's, there is, no matter how small your interaction is, and even if it's a place that you've been to a hundred times over, you learn and you're challenged and, and you just feel part of something bigger um, right. and wild. And I think that really draws me because, you know, so much of it, especially with our, you know, global travel these days, you know, COVID has put a, a little pause into that, but... We, it's such a global space that we we move and function and you know one day we're in Europe the next day we're in Australia we connect in zoom and, and these all these platforms across the world we've got you know every inch of the earth's terrestrial surface is mapped and yet the ocean is just there's so much potential for wildness and adventure still in this day and age and I love that it's the excitement as well isn't it mm. it's beautiful what you said because it can be so depressing thinking about the environmental issues. You know, you go off on holiday and you spend your time picking up plastic or, you know, mm. diving for plastic bags, et cetera, which lots of people do, me included. And um, I think it's because of the vastness of the space and the, the enormity of this titanic issue environmentally, I think people can feel very confused as to what they can do, as how, how they can move forward and how they can contribute, right? Be it as experts like yours, you know, civilians. And, you know, you've obviously spent quite a lot of time raising awareness about marine conservation issues, you know, threats facing the oceans, I guess, driven by consumers, by political interests, by nation states. Where are you today? Because as you referenced earlier, as a scientist, you know, you can go into micro issues and which, you, you know, you've got to start at the source of many of these problems and work systematically through. But where are you today in terms of in your thinking and your approach on the scale of the issues, what can be done, what is working and what isn't actually working? Because we know there are lots of things that aren't working and, and perhaps we talk less about the things that are working effectively. You know, the exciting thing with marine conservation, I think, is that, you know, you we talk about, you know, the small things making a difference, you know, additively. And in the oceans, that, and, and it can, as you say, you know, it can be a little bit of a narrative. It can be kind of, you know, how we uh, console ourselves that you know a little bit help but they in the ocean space they really do I mean it, it's as you were saying before it really is the ultimate commons you know there's it belongs to everybody and to nobody and that's very scary when no one's taking responsibility but it also is is great opportunity for us to to have an impact no matter where we are in the world and I think that's my point of entry with with conversations about you know how can we make a difference what what do we need to do to make the change and there's so many just very simple things that we do in our daily life anyway that if we just make sure that we're informed and and make better choices on a daily basis on tiny things it really really can have a huge cumulative impact so can you give I mean, us you know, give me some examples like something yeah, that's sure. blindingly obvious to you but perhaps not to everyone else mm, absolutely so I mean the, the the plastic thing is I know we you know we all hear about plastic pollution how awful it is but I find it astounding how how very often there's a disconnect of how how that plastic actually gets into the ocean and the idea that it from you know if it's not dealt with uh, correctly or recycled or managed which in a lot of the world it isn't it runs from from your landfills into your waterways down your waterways into the oceans um, so all of that is no matter where you are on the planet, very often if it's not well managed, it's draining straight into the oceans. So by cutting that link and making sure that you reduce your plastic usage, when you do use plastic, make sure that it's recyclable. 
wherever possible, use alternatives that are biodegradable, compostable. Totally. So even if they do land in these landfills, they can decompose. So, I mean, that's a super, super easy one that has more power than I think we realize. The other huge one is getting informed about where our food comes from and where our products come from. Oh, absolutely. Because, you know, the, every single time we spend money, we are making a statement on as, as creating consumer demand. And that's what drives our economy. So if we are demanding local products and produce, then we're directly impacting the amount of carbon that is being emitted into the atmosphere. Because, I mean, we can buy, you know, if, we, if we're not informed and not looking at where our products are coming from, we, an apple in our local store could have traveled halfway around the world oh, to get absolutely. to us totally. with all the associated emissions. So just, just getting informed is really, really powerful. And then, I mean, turning, so our buying powers are already a huge political statement, but Voting, you know, <laughs> make sure that your voice is heard in the political space. Because I could not as, agree more. Otherwise, you have no yeah. voice and you don't have a right to one, in my personal view. Exactly. So, you know, you're, you're, use your dollar to vote with, you know, or your pound or your rand or, or shilling. Yeah. Um, but then, you know, make sure that you're, you, you are um, making your voice heard in, in the political space as well. Because ultimately, that is what drives the global agenda to a large extent. You know, that the economic side is driven by your buying power. But the political side needs to needs to come on board with that as well. So, Tessa, where do you stand on fish? Because I know, um, I mean, just in recent times, I've spoken to a number of friends and acquaintances, and quite a number of people who who love fish, and and you know that might be their you know they wouldn't eat meat or chicken, whatever, but they eat fish. Have decided to stop eating fish because of everything that's going on. Clearly, for many, many, many communities, it is their main source of protein, as we as we mentioned earlier, and you know they're not necessarily in communities where they have the luxury of wide range of food, or or you know whether in some cases there's extreme poverty, and and it, it's really you know borderline hunger issues and that is the source that they have to eat but what's your view for the western world which is obviously a bit more privileged in the main on fish and what people should be doing yeah no it's it's a very challenging one that actually um because i mean especially we all know the, the wonderful health benefits of of, of uh, eating seafood and so it is challenging but it's again it comes down to being informed and to information and to moderating you know so uh, you can take a hard stance and say I'm, I'm not eating fish and that's obviously has, has a wonderful positive impact in terms of um, not driving the, the seafood harvesting in the first place but if you are eating fish the critical thing is to get informed because what's sustainable in one place is not necessarily sustainable elsewhere so in the developed world, we're actually we're quite lucky these days. We have some really exciting platforms that give us the information, you know, in an app on our phones. So things like South Africa, we have SASI, which is the South African Sea Sustainable Seafood Initiative. There's right. Seafood Watch. There's a whole bunch of these things. So you can literally, you know, check your phone, um, see what the data is in terms of the species. Is it caught locally? Is it caught with, you know, a pocket line rather than trawl nets that are, are damaging habitats in the process? Um, has, has it been caught close by us? There are no carbon emissions associated. So, you know, wherever possible, get informed. Demand that your suppliers, if you are eating fish, demand that your suppliers know what where the food comes from. What species is it? You know, most, a lot of restaurants and seafood markets actually won't even know what species of fish it is. And that's Shockingly. completely unacceptable, you know. <laughs> and we have to make sure that our suppliers understand that that's unacceptable. You can't, you know, put a piece of red meat on a plate and go, oh, could be a zebra, could be a kangaroo, don't really know, but you know, maybe it's beef, let's call it beef. <laughs> you know, it's 
we've got to demand the same standards for, for fish. Um, and I think also very importantly, the other two pieces are um, eat less. You know, so if you are going to eat fish, when you do eat fish, make sure that it's something that is, is sustainable locally for you in your particular location. And really, you know, make it a special thing. You know, this is something that is a gift from the ocean and it's not something we can eat five days a week. It's something special and value it for that. So just reduce your consumption and make it a, a special rather than a standard. And then if, if you're ever in doubt, my, my other rule of thumb is eat lower down the food chain. So not only is there a health benefit in that these days because there's, there's a lot of toxins accumulating in the food chain. So if you eat predatory species like tuna and um, marlin and all of these, these top predators, um, there are toxins accumulating up the food chain Absolutely. from what you're putting into the ocean. Horrifically. <laughs> which is a great deterrent actually yeah. from eating those species um, and then also down the bottom of the food chain things reproduce more quickly so um, things like sardines they're eating plankton they're reproducing quite quickly they have short lifespans so the impact of eating smaller fish from lower down the food chain is far less than these long-lived predators that take a long time to grow feed on lots, lots of other fish in the ocean and reproduce slowly the impact of eating those is far greater so that's a good rule of thumb is, you know, eat, eat lower down the food chain. <laughs> Lots absolutely. of vegetables, well, generally. <laughs> well, I know, absolutely. Mm. I mean, that is, that is the way forward and obviously local. And does it tell me, we've seen with the United Nations, you know, they've the whole 2030 agenda for sustainable development, you know, as a framework for countries, nations and so forth, you know, I guess to work towards a more sustainable, equitable life and future for all. There are these, you know, the sustainable development goals. There's one which you will know all about. I think it's SDG 14, which is specifically related to conservation, sustainable use of the oceans and marine resources for, for development for all. You know, what are you seeing in East Africa, which is really where you are at home today? Uh, you know, there are, I guess there are more than 30 million people who rely on the oceans, you know, protein from fish and so forth. What are you seeing there that gives you hope? And what is your biggest concern? In terms of the concern, um, let's maybe start with the negative and work towards <laughs> the positive. Um, so in terms of the concern, I mean, the, the growing populations and the, the growing dependence on, on seafood is, is absolutely probably the biggest concern because, you know, the, the ocean is seen as this kind of endless, bountiful resource. So when all else fails you know, you go to the ocean and <laughs> you, you can live off that. And um, with populations increasing, um, you know, there's a lot of areas in East Africa with incredibly high levels of poverty, and that's predicted to increase um, significantly in the next few decades, which breeds increasing reliance on very limited resources. And as terrestrial resources get depleted, you know, there's, there's a greater reliance on those ocean resources. So I think that is absolutely a huge concern. And I suppose, you know, along with that, there's a lot of, in the East African space, you know, there's a, as things become more developed, so fishing practices become more commercialized, industrialized, uh, there's also a growing ability to exploit. And because there's need for economic growth, that's an avenue for development. But then obviously, you know, is that sustainable in terms of the, the oceans and the, those ecosystems? But I mean, in in conjunction with that, oh, and I suppose the other piece there as well is, is also... Um, the changing climate and the impact of that on people and and marine ecosystems and how that's going to play out in the coming years. But then in terms of hope, I mean, I think the exciting thing for me is just seeing, you know, Africa's good at, um, you know, the if you want to 
if you want to go fast, go alone. If you go, if you want to go far, go together. Right. And I think Africa's really, for the most part, pretty good at that. You know, this uh, being able to work together, the, the idea of community. I think Africa's a really good space for those those sorts of um, lenses for conservation and for for sustainable growth. And the oceans demand that. You know, like the the name of um, the program, the Oceans Without Borders, was just so fortuitous at the time. I don't think we realized quite how much, but it, it truly is. There are no borders in the ocean. You can't delineate between countries. You can't put fences around marine protected areas. You know, it's it's all intimately connected. So we have to work together if we've got any shot at conserving these these ecosystems. And seeing that philosophy growing in East Africa is amazing. You know, a lot of the work we do, we're working with collaborators across at least Tanzania, Mozambique, and South Africa, which are our three areas, but then into the Western Indian Ocean, into Seychelles, um, now a project coming up with Mauritius as well. Wonderful. So there's a there's this really fantastic, you know, growth of, of meaningful collaborations um, across political boundaries, um, intersectoral as well, which, you know, your reference to the SDGs is a space that they've really recognized the, the need for intersectoral collaboration as one of the key pieces that's missing in terms of moving us forward towards these SDGs. So the fact that we're we're now very much working in these intersectoral spaces in East, Af- East Africa, and, it, and it's complicated, it's difficult, and it's clunky, but I sort of, you know, I feel that if you're in that place of discomfort, you're probably in the right place because you're driving change, you're, in, you're doing things that haven't been done before. And being part of this, this growing collaborative um, intersectoral, bottom-up, all the way through political systems, NGOs, universities and seeing the growth of those those relationships and collaborations i think that's really really exciting because that is the change that has to happen for marine conservation and it's so encouraging to hear that groups and individuals are working more closely together that people really are stepping up that they are engaging that they are working with urgency i find that personally very heartwarming because it's not always the case Tessie, you've you've had lots of experiences in your life and you've been in, you know, what would be for many quite extreme circumstances in, in the depths of the oceans and so forth, even starting where we, uh, you know, going back to where we started with, with the, the helicopter pilots and so forth, right? <laughs> Just love that. Um, it, have there been experiences that you've had or even an experience that changed you or where, you know, you can think of that moment and say, that's when the moment things changed in my life or I decided to go in a certain direction? Um, I've been lucky enough to have a few of those, I think. Um, Do tell me, I'm so curious. (laughs) No, life has been good with with it. It's got a nice clear line going, this is the way. Um, Yeah, I think, I mean, one of the uh, you know, in terms of my, my current journey in East Africa, and particularly with coral reefs, I think um, one of the moments for me that really has set me on this current path was uh, diving at a place. So in the northern Kremis that I was telling you about, where we were based um, previously, where um, this insurgency is now, there's a site there that is just, it's absolutely incredible. Like I used to call it my church <laughs> because it it's just it's off the, so the Northern Mozambican um, channel has these, it's a continental plate boundary. So it's these incredibly deep waters. And they're these islands that run perpendicular to the coast. And between them, there are canyons that come off this, the, the Mozambican channel. And so they're, they're anything from sort of 800 to four kilometers deep in that area, which is astounding. You know, when you're on a little boat on the ocean, you think Incredible. about what's below you. 
it's just mind blowing. It's just like I try and explain you. It's like the Grand Canyon below you. You just have oh no idea. Gosh. And this particular site is just. I remember. I was quite reluctant to go up, not reluctant, but I was sort of dragging my feet about going up to be a dive instructor because I was like, oh, I'm a very serious scientist. I'm going to do my PhD and <laughs> don't have time to go and be a dive instructor anymore. And um, my friends up there convinced me and said, look, just come help us out. We need a, need a dive instructor for three months. Just come do three months and then you can carry on with being a serious scientist. And uh, they took me to the site and they just said, this is going to be the best day of your life. I thought, yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know. It's a big, tough dive instructor talk. But that <laughs> site, I think, you know, putting my head underwater and, and just crashing into that blue was just absolutely astounding. It's a place where you just, that feeling of being small is just so cute. You know, you're looking into the depths of this blue and there's a, it's a wall that goes from 10 meters below the surface. So that's very immediate, like right. it's just below your boat. And then it drops off immediately into kilometers of deep blue depth. Oh, my gosh. And it's just like you, you sort of get vertigo almost. It's just you absolutely just feel like you're just this tiny speck on this phenomenal planet. And then when you dive into this site, there are all these sort of blocks that have fallen away from the side of this, this precipice. And... Um, there's just corals like tumbling off the edge of them and to see coral diversity and health and life like that in, you know, when the oceans in so many places are just so depleted, that just fills you with hope and passion and motivation again. And there are towers of fish there that you, and they literally are like towers that come up to the surface. And you, the more I've got to know the site, you, you're able to read, to read how it works. So when you fall into the water, you can see, ah, oh, this is where the fish are. And you know, that's the way the current is traveling in. Right. So as you get to know it and you read these dynamics, like it just, it gives you such an intimate connection with something so huge and powerful and just rich and diverse and full of life. And it's, yeah. So, I mean, I think seeing that for the first time in my life and there's the sharks as well. <laughs> it's a shark aggregation site and, you know, seeing big numbers of sharks in, in a place like How that. How was that? Just like mind blowing. You know, it's just, it's so, it's so wonderful being yeah, just feeling feeling like you're part of an ecosystem. I think it gives us a sense of place. And, you know, coming face-to-face -face with a predator is a good way to remember that you're part of an ecosystem. How did you um, feel in that moment when you were staring at a, at a, at a shark? Oh, I absolutely love working with sharks. Um, and it's always a sense of um, awe, definitely. I think that's the first feeling. Um there's a primal thing that I think, you know, when you, when you go on safari as well, when you look at a lion and you realize this is, you know, I'm on safari and it's all very controlled and the rest, but there's something primal as well that you go, mm, okay, just got to watch myself here, <laughs> um, which is fantastic. It's that same thing of, it makes you very present um, because you, you're blown away plus just acutely having to tune into their behavior because when a shark's relaxed, it's the most wonderful thing to watch and just observe but if a, if a shark is in a, you know, if you've upset it in some sort of way or it, it's got its hunting um, intuition, you know, it's firing because it's hunting prey and you're suddenly in the middle of all this, you, you want to be aware of that. So you have to tune in very carefully, which is fantastic. So you, you're completely present. And I mean, you know, yes, psychology and um, modern science is showing increasingly that, that that ability or that um, 
being in spaces where we have to be entirely present is just so powerful and so good for us in terms of our mental health. Because we're so distracted but, um, most of the time, right? Unfortunately. Exactly. Exactly. And sharks are fantastic at that. They really, they make you feel part of something bigger and they make you very present, which is wonderful. So when, yeah. you, when you had that, that, that specific diving experience, like what, what, what shifted for you? Because obviously there was the intensity of that moment and the overwhelming beauty and enormity and feeling part of something vast right in the most incredible accelerated way in some respects but after that what shifted for you did you feel you you changed or you made certain choices based on that experience because it was so powerful mm. I mean I from my three months my my you know agreeing to be there for three months I ended up staying three years <laughs> did never wanted to leave so <laughs> So that, that changed quite dramatically. Um, and then eventually I had I was dragged away from there to go and do a PhD, um, which was fantastic and it was really the right thing to do. But again, my PhD was, the, the idea was to start, um, was to focus it on that particular site, actually. I wanted to work with the sharks. And, um, but then I realized quite quickly that doing a, a three-year PhD, which is very short for PhDs, at a, you know, a high-powered institution in Australia, I was at James Cook University, and then trying to combine that with tagging sharks in a very remote location in East Africa that yeah. the timelines just weren't yeah, going to line absolutely. up. Absolutely. But I mean, we've we've continued with we started a, a shark tagging program there in partnership with uh, the local um, shareholders who've who've driven conservation quite strongly there for over twenty five years now, and with the local university Unilurio. And that tagging program continues today and is is expanding um, and is working. Right. Is working. Yeah. So I mean. Despite really um, you know, challenge, extremely challenging circumstances up there now, we've actually, our, our field operations manager was just before this call actually sending me photos of him restoring, he's, he's just put the receivers back onto that site today Wonderful. Um, to re- Wonderful. record the shark movements through that site. So, so that dive really, for me, was the beginning of a very long journey that continues to today and will hopefully for many decades in terms of um, working to understand the movements of those predators, how it links with other places in East Africa, um, monitoring, you know, what are the changes we're seeing at the site, trying to better and working collaboratively. You know, this, that program has actually driven a lot of the collaborative relationships we have now with other researchers and um, conservation organizations and universities. It's seeded a huge collaborative conservation education, hospitality, you know, linking into the ecotourism world, this entire movement, that a lot of it is, is, it's captured a lot of imaginations, I think, which is really powerful in creating change for conservation on the, on the planet as well. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And it's so important that all these things interconnect, right? Because they can feed off one another. What's, be, what's been exactly. the most terrifying thing that you've experienced or witnessed that's stayed with you and, and contributed to who you are today? Hmm. Um, probably, I think two things. The, the one in a purely environmental sense is coral bleaching. It's whew, the, the scale of that is something else. And, you know, as, as I've seen it in a couple of contexts where it has been very overwhelming. But I think the really sort of most profound um, kind of moving point in my journey with that was when I was at James Cook University, the 2016, 2017, back-to-back bleaching years. I mean, bleaching is, you know, it's a natural part of, of coral reef ecology to some extent. You know, it happens 
every 50 years or, you know, maybe every 20 years. But at the moment, we actually... We it's have been extreme, hasn't it? It's a bleaching season. So we have an annual bleaching season globally, um, which is just insane. And, you know, that's become the norm. But that 2016, 2017 back-to-back bleaching, um, I was at uh, the Center of Excellence for Coral Reef Studies, uh, sort of wrapping up my PhD then. And um, that was when these, these intensive bleachings hit the Great Barrier Reef. And um, my office was right next door to the director's office. He decided, you know, we need to fly transects of the entire Great Barrier Reef to assess the extent of this bleaching. And um, all of my colleagues and friends were all ground-truthing what they were seeing from the aerial surveys. So they, they were repeating aerial surveys that had been done in the 1990s. And the information was coming back about the extent of this bleaching. And they were just, it was just devastating. You know, the, this massive tract of ocean. And it was just dying. And that's just... Yeah, overwhelming, right? Completely overwhelming. And so, Tessa, no, I feel your pain. And I... You know, I, I know, you know, coral is, is so close to your heart and, and so close to your life in, in every respect, right? I mean, it's emotional. Um, how hopeful are you, you know, when you see what has gone on with this bleaching, the speed at which bleaching is happening? How hopeful are you now, looking at the technology that's coming through, looking at, you know, the sustainable goals, looking at all these environmental initiatives and people grouping together, you know, where is your level of hope in relation to, you know, improvement or at least, you know, slowing up this dreadful sort of aberration that's happening, you know, in the coral reefs of the world? Um, I think you you have to be hopeful. <laughs> like, yes. if you, um, I sort of I had that realization a few years ago. Telling I was telling my dad about all the work that I was doing, and I was, and um, he said, "Wow, that's pretty dire." And I said. Yeah, and I was like, I think I have to be irrationally positive. You know, it's not, I, you can't be entirely sane with this. <laughs> but um, so I think hope is essential. And I, you know, th- these last few weeks that I spent on Namba Island, you know, times like that really give me a lot of hope and, and motivation again, because the impacts on the reef there are huge. Uh, there's, there's coral bleaching. There's um, a lot of impact from um, unregulated tourism. Uh, from you know destructive fishing practices and a lot of that you know a lot of it comes down to to ignorance so you know ignorance is 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 something we can deal with (laughs) which is great because you can teach yeah so education um, is so fundamental right absolutely so you know it's working with um we've now got a really exciting team that's growing there the the community and conservation rangers they are from the local communities on on zanzibar and those guys, I mean, I met them for the first time because we actually employed them during COVID and I met them for the first time a few weeks ago. And I was just so inspired by them because they're each one of them and they come from, you know, rural fishing villages and the things they've achieved in their life and their passion for education and for helping their communities of fishermen and boatmen to understand the impacts on the reef was just astounding, you know, and they're, they're in the schools, we were doing yoga practices on how to engage with children, so you, they're physically learning about all this. And those guys are busy at the moment. We've launched a reef restoration project, so they're oh, that's wonderful. They're finishing up on that. So over the last three weeks, they've gone from not knowing how to dive to being qualified divers, and now coral farmers. So they're growing baby corals and learning how to manage a coral nursery. Oh, that's beautiful. And, um, yeah, and from next month, they're coming to to start a restoration project on our island's house reef, which is, has been hugely impacted. And then that combined with the power of, of luxury travel um, and high-end guests that have, you know, huge influence on the world. 
um, and then being able to see directly what is the what are the changes that we're making, what has driven the the, the negative impacts, what are the the sources of hope and for doing better going forward, you know, just opens up all of those conversations and all of those avenues for change. So there's absolutely hope. Um, we just have to, yeah, just, you know, do what we can. And, and one of the things that I always say when, you know, working with, with whoever, with any groups is that, you know, that if you have knowledge, if you have information and you have the, the gift of understanding these things, then you also have great responsibility. You have to share that. So that's what I think, you know, I think if we all practice that, we really can make a change. Totally. So educate ourselves. I mean, in our, in our Western developed world, we have no excuse for not being informed. We have ultimate access to information through, through our digital platforms. COVID has made it even more available because through the pandemic, there, there are forums and, you know, entire international conferences. The IUCN conference was just completely online. We can access information. We have no excuse for not being informed. And if we have that information, then share it and we can change. You know, we have the power to create incredible change. I think that's right. And I think as well, you can't unknow what you know. You can't unlearn. You may momentarily forget because you're a bit scatty that day, but you can't unlearn it. And, you know, to your point, everyone can do something and something is better than nothing. And one step leads to another step, leads to a bigger one, right? Tessa, where's home for you? I mean, where do you feel at home? Um, with, with, with the, given, <laughs> given the sort of places you go to and the, you know, the diversity of places, how is that in your life in terms of where you really feel your base is? It's a big question and it's, it's, um, it's one that's it's probably quite a, a, a core part of my personal questioning at the moment. But um, I think... Africa, Eastern Southern Africa, absolutely, is, is definitely where I feel at home. You know, like it, it was interesting being, living in Australia for, for a good while. And I've had, you know, had phenomenal life in Australia and continue to have very good friends and colleagues there. And there's so much about Australia. You know, South Africans always get, you, know, you have to compare the two. And there's so much about um, being in, a, in somewhere with, you know, a far more developed society and economy that is wonderful. But it's, when you come back to Africa, you really just go, yeah. you know, for all of the inefficiencies and challenges and complexities and just rogueness of it, it it's it's home <laughs> for me anyway. Um, so I do, I love being here. Um, I think, you know, both of my parents grew up in Zululand, which is northeastern um, KwaZulu-Natal, so the northeast coast of South Africa. And that part of the world, I think, is, is probably where I have strongest roots as well. It's very... Um, at South Africa, it is very much home. It's very wild in terms of bushveld um, habitat, which is, you know, what, what I grew up with. But then it's got this beautiful wild coastline with just, you know, the first coral reefs that I ever saw are the, are the reefs of Sudwana Bay and the Simangaliso World Heritage Area. Yeah, beautiful. So, yeah. So, I mean, that part of the world, I think, is... Um, and we're, we're actually we're expanding um, a few of our projects into that space now. And I think that's a place that really brings so many of the elements of what I call home together Um including community, because I think, you know, home, home is, is very often people and not necessarily places. And, uh, oh, absolutely true. And a lot of those, those people are, are in that space as well. So, yeah, I'm lucky to have a few homes, but that's, that's probably ground zero. That yeah. sounds wonderful because it can be sometimes quite disconcerting when you're in between different, very radically different places, right? 
like coming back and, and sort of settling again on Mother Earth, it can, I guess, you know, provoke emotions of, of you know, where do you belong and, and big existential questions, which I'm sure you've experienced on occasion. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, no, I've been there, <laughs> for sure. <laughs> yeah. so, Tessa, if we're looking out over the next few years, what's your big focus and, and what are you excited about? I think the the theme of, you know, building that regional capacity is is probably both my focus and what I'm really excited about is um, and building these networks, so regional networks that link into sort of, you know, global conversations, global impact is really, really exciting. And over the past few months, I was telling you how we've been recruiting a lot locally. And it's been so incredibly exciting seeing who's there, you know. Um, the, we recently uh, recruited a project manager for our Zanzibar base and, you know, seeing the caliber of applicants um, and particularly, you know, young African women coming through Fantastic. that are just so eloquent, so inspired, um, passionate and driven and completely fearless. I mean, two of the women that have just joined our team, one in South Africa and one in, in Tanzania, four months ago now, they couldn't swim. Both of them are now, one is a qualified dive master and one is a master rescue diver. Oh, and that's so impressive. Just, like, <laughs> it's unbelievable. So like, just being, I'm so excited about being inspired by just this, you know, our, um, one of my colleagues refers to precocious African talent. I, I love that. that. It's just, I love that. And there's the so future. much of it. Yeah. Yeah. And there's just, there's just this incredible wave of talent and passion and change coming through in Africa. And but having the opportunity to to work with these inspiring people and to help, you know, forge the linkages that can really maximize their impact on the world is just, it's a great privilege. It's very exciting. And it just gives me so much hope for the future. So building that and being part of that is, is definitely my focus and um, yeah, what really excites me about the coming years. Well, that is super exciting. I'm sure you're also a huge inspiration to them. Tessa, thank you so much for being with me today. Thank you so much, Dee, and for all the inspiration you spread through your work. Thank you. Thank you for joining me on Double Espresso with Dee. I hope you enjoyed this episode and can subscribe and share these fascinating stories. 